Hey, music lovers, the Cannamom Show podcast in collaboration with Lambkin Guitars is giving away a custom-built, one-of-a-kind electric guitar built by Josh Lampkin. The solid one-piece hemp wood body includes a built-in glass bowl piece. Yeah, you heard me right. You can take a hit and then play a lick. Now's your chance to help the Cannamom Show crush cannabis stigma with your entry. Register for the Hemp Guitar Giveaway online at lampkinguitars.com. That's L-A-M-K-I-N guitars.com. The drawing will be part of a 420 celebration at the Goods Dispensary in Somerville, Massachusetts, where the guitar is on display for the month of April. But don't worry, you don't have to live in Mass or be present to win. Visit LampkinGuitars.com to scope out the Hemp Guitar giveaway details and entry form. You'll even find a video of what could be your guitar in action. L-A-M-K-I-N-Guitars.com If you're a cannabis business owner looking to expand into new markets and need guidance and support you can trust, consider Collateral Base a group that has done it before in multiple merit-based and limited market states. Collateral Base was founded by an experienced cannabis attorney with highly educated consultants with master's degrees and years of experience in the cannabis industry. The Collateral Base team is confident they know cannabis licensing better than any of their peers. And I encourage you to see for yourself. It just takes one phone call. If you're ready to expand your cannabis business into new limited markets, contact Collateral Base today at 309-306-1095. That's 309-306-1095. Or visit collateralbase.com. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome to another episode of Everything is Personal. So happy to have a person I was trying to get in the show for a while, and we had scheduling conflicts, and uh, he's actually joining us uh, not in a vehicle like he has previously because of scheduling conflicts, but in this beautiful cultivation facility behind him. Uh, whether he's there or not, we don't know. That's an illusion. But anyway, welcome to uh, the show, Mr. Robert Beasley, who is the CEO of Fluent. How are you? Hi, uh, thanks for having me on. Thank you. So, uh, and actually, this is uh, my screensaver, but this is the indoor of our Tampa facility. So, it's uh, reflective of what we have going on right now in Tampa, Florida. That's great. Um, so, we were just talking previously because uh, you you also have a pubco called Consortium. So that's uh, and you're doing business as Fluent. Is that is that correct? That's correct. So the uh, the parent company, the public company is Consortium Inc. And it is publicly traded on the Canadian exchange. Um, and the ticker is TIUM. And then the company does business in the various state and the trade name Fluent. F-L-U-E-N-T. Cool. All right. So now we got all that uh, stuff out of the way. Let's get into some fun stuff. Um, so I want to get a little bo- bit more background on you. And uh, so the first thing is, where did you grow up? I grew up in Pensacola, Florida, in the panhandle of Florida, uh, born and raised there. I'm one of the few native Floridians, I think, that may exist uh, here in the state. Yeah, you're probably right. So I, I'm in L.A. now. It's the same thing. Like finding a person who's like from L.A. is is really rare these days. So uh, what what was your childhood like? Uh, were your parents together? Did you have siblings? Yeah, sure. Uh, my parents were together and still together now celebrating. I think they just celebrated 50 years of marriage. Um, and, um, my, I have one younger sister, she's doing uh, computer, uh, programming, I believe, uh, uh, up in Atlanta. So, yeah. And I grew up here, just went to high school here and then went away to the university of Florida and then law school in Vermont, and then worked a little bit in DC and then back to Pensacola to start my own law firm in 2001. So going through, uh, from Florida to Vermont, uh, how was the change, not only culture in Pensacola, uh, for the, it's, it's not like being in Miami, just for people who don't really understand, uh, you know, how Florida is because Florida has a few different countries within the, the actual state. I think, uh, from right. my personal experience, I used to have a, I used to have a place in Fort Lauderdale. So like 
and then traveling northern and then I'm uh, I'm from Philly, so uh, Phillies would play in Clearwater. So I would sometimes go and uh, and visit that. So you have two different countries where Clearwater is versus where Fort Lauderdale is. So I just wanted to kind of give people that. Florida is a diverse state, both geographically uh, and well as population. Um, the climate and um, uh, geography of Pensacola, we like, they call it the Redneck Riviera. We're more uh, southern here, even though we're on the beach. Uh, we're the kind of stuck up under Alabama and Georgia over here. Uh, and then you get to probably from here to Gainesville is about the same. And then from Gainesville, if you go south, you continue to go north, north culturally until you get to Miami Beach and then you're back in New York City. Uh, yes, I'm, I'm glad you said it that way. I didn't want to say about the Redneck Riviera, so you, you, you said it. Yeah. Uh, so, so we're pretty proud of our, our heritage and culture up here. <laughs> it's a pretty laid back little uh, little town and uh, big Navy presence. And, um, you know, when I took this job, I was actively uh, running my law firm that I had started 20 years before. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I was not in a position to just up and move. Plus, I have three kids. Uh, and so I was pretty well grounded into Pensacola and I uh, have worked through that a little bit. Uh, now my law firm carries on and actually flourishes without me to my disappointment. Um, <laughs> but um, I'm full-time fluent. and have been since September of 20. Got it. So let, let's go back to the Vermont uh, change of uh, kind of culture and weather going from uh, Florida, Vermont. Did you become a skier at that point? I attempted it. Um, I'm a pretty bulky guy. So uh, <laughs> gravity was working on me more than others. And uh, picking up skiing late in life is probably not the, the, the best way to success. But I did enjoy it. I, I you know, I've made it just past Pizza Wedge. Um, <laughs> it, was, it was a great opportunity for my family to come up. You know, I, all I had ever seen were the pine trees between Gainesville, Florida and Pensacola, Florida. Uh, which aren't very stimulating. And uh, I, I got accepted to the University of Florida Law School and decided Vermont was the place to me to go for me uh, just to really get a change. It was the number one or two environmental law school in the time. So, um, you know, it was one of those reach schools. And when I got in, I, I moved up and uh, I was super excited. I got there on August 28th and we had a bonfire by the lake. It was 75 degrees and sunny. And then by dark, it was 28. And uh, my sole winter possessions at that point coming from the University of Florida was a pair of jeans and a sweatshirt. And so I uh, had a severe adjustment. Yeah, I was just saying, I just got back from Colorado. So I'm from Philly, but I, I lived in LA for the last almost 15 years. I, I was just in Colorado and it was, uh, you know, north of Denver, it was 26 degrees and snowing. And I, I just couldn't, my body couldn't adjust. I was, I had so many layers on and it was so cold that I, I just forgot what that cold feels like. And I'm talking to my friends in, in, uh, in Canada, they're like 26 degrees. It's nothing. We have like <laughs> negative, whatever. Right. Know, it's all relative. It's all exactly. relative. It's all I, relative. I used to tell home people at home that uh, Vermont had two seasons, winter and the 4th of July. Um, so. <laughs> right. Yeah. So. I think Mount but, Snow, you know, I, I think it was Mount Snow that I used to. Uh, go to maybe uh, I don't remember. But it's a beautiful state. Um, you know, I've been back there a couple times. We're looking at a facility in Upper State New York, and uh, um, I drove around that region. And quite frankly, looking at it with my older eyes now, I, there's a lot more to appreciate there than when I was a 20-something year old. It's a beautiful state. The way they've controlled their, um, you know, legislation as far as keeping hometowns alive in a, in 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 competition, whereas Walmart has run out all the others. Uh, they've done it right up there. Yeah. So let me go back and were you as a child, like a, as, a, as a kid and, and growing up as a teenager, would you always want to be uh, an attorney? No, I wanted to be a charter boat captain. Uh, I got my, uh, received my captain's license and uh, my, coll- my grandfather had never been to college or really high school and convinced me to go to a year or two of junior college in exchange for uh, his promise that he would pay to set me up in a charter boat business if I failed out. And so I went to, went to college and I guess, what is that? Seven years later, I graduated law school. So he, he kickstarted me down the road. He uh, <laughs> compelled upon me the idea of keeping your hobbies, your hobbies and, um, you know, go to work and pay for your boat instead of work on a boat. And uh, so um, I, I was one of these kids that was always told that I should be a lawyer. Yeah. Um, and so I ended up uh, realizing I had no other real good means to make a, to make a living. So that's where I ended up. So. When you graduated from law school, uh, was there a specific type of law that you, appealed to you? 
Yeah, I, uh, I went to a law school. I have an environmental science undergraduate degree. And so my undergraduate is pretty heavy science to include plant science and soil science, which is interesting because it comes back around in cannabis later. And I'm actually dusting off some of that old uh, plant science knowledge and botany. Um, but I went to environmental law school because I thought I wanted to do environmental law. I had no real idea what concept that was. Um, most of my classmates ended up in industries, steel and water, uh, regulatory industries. And that wasn't really for me. Um, and so I ended up trying to gravitate towards the real estate side of environmental law, which is uh, wetlands permitting and so forth. I uh, did a stint with the Army Corps of Engineers in D.C. and uh, came back to Pensacola. Back in Pensacola, with it being a smaller town, you really couldn't specialize in quote environmental law. And so I ended up doing basic general litigation and uh, real estate law um, and built those practices up over time. Yeah, I'm, I'm a little familiar with that. I used to be a commercial real estate broker. And uh, one of my specialties was gas stations. So I had to deal with a lot of environmental lawyers and cleanup. Um, you should have familiar with the underground storage tank regulations. I was going to say uh, I had a situation. with regulations, as they call exactly. it. Exactly. It was just so funny because uh, I was dealing with a large uh, church, and I'm not going to mention any names, obviously. And it was a transaction. And we knew there was an underground storage tank. And you know it has to be removed correctly, remediated, all that stuff. So uh, we went back to the site, and uh, they told us that the, the tank was removed. So over the weekend, the, the church paid people to remove the tank and didn't do it properly. So that was a very interesting. Uh, we see the same occurrence happen with endangered species or threatened species like turtles and pitcher plants and uh, geckos. Uh, they, they seem to disappear over the weekend when a, when a development's right. Made. Uh, exactly. uh, I swear there were turtles there, but now they're gone. So, yeah, they, they just uh, migrated. It, it happens. It's certainly <laughs> certainly not appropriate, but it does happen. I didn't I didn't realize storage tanks could jump out of the ground. Oh, I guess it happens as well. It happens. Well, it was a church, so they they you know they prayed and <laughs> resurrected. <laughs> <laughs> so, all right, cannabis. How how did you get into uh, cannabis uh, as a as an attorney? First. Well, it, it, it's it's a it's kind of an odd twist. Um, through my real estate development um, uh, practice, I ended up connected with developers all over the state doing uh, hotel projects, condo projects, and one of those was another lawyer by the name of John Morgan. He was he was uh, pushing the fight in Florida, um, and um, kind of watched his efforts and was uh, you know admiring what he was doing. He believed in it and um, stood up for it with with his own money and, and got the amendment passed. And so I. I worked closely and tried closely following the amendment with the legislative process and then the regulatory process, um, represented applicants in the process um, when those applications weren't successful or the process itself wasn't successful because it was kind of a disaster at the beginning, um, uh, participated in the litigation uh, following what's known as the floor grown litigation and the appeals that followed um, and just became familiar um, with what the rules did and didn't say. That kind of had put me as a shoe in as a consultant. Um, some of the first, when the first couple of licenses came out in Florida, uh, they were all 30 year nurseries by design, by statutory design. And so they all knew each other and they had land. If you're a 30 year nursery, your grandfather started it. So you have land, you have some assets, you know how to grow plants, but you really don't have any money. And, and the scale was a lot smaller. And typically there was one big one in Florida, but mostly they went to medium sized nurseries. Mm. And so I began advising and consulting and very quickly, um, using my real estate developer context to bring in funding. So I brought in some funding for two of the first five um, in order to do the bonding requirements and the liquidity requirements. And so that's how I got started. And one of the first developer clients that I brought in required that I be the chairman of the board if I were if it was going to be his money being put in play. Got it. So did you have a passion for the industry as well? No, I, I like to confess that at that point I was a complete and total fraud. I um, I had never touched the stuff. I, um, I I drank an ocean of whiskey when I was growing up, all after twenty one, of course. Um, but of course, <laughs> um, I just never. I wasn't a smoker, and I didn't. Uh, I wasn't attracted to that crowd. I, I played football in high school, and um, and just wasn't our bag. And uh, oddly enough, in law school was the first time I ever really had contact with it. Uh, my roommate was an avid smoker of cannabis. And he would, the very first time uh, I noticed it, he was sitting right there. He said, well, I'm going to go read contracts. And there's about a hundred, you know, you read about a hundred pages of contracts a night and he fired up a bowl and, and I couldn't believe that he would do that before studying. And then he would do it before he took a test. 
but the odd thing was looking back on it when uh when he would go out and party he was from texas when he'd go out and party he would drink whiskey yeah uh, and so he never really partied on it but he used it for maintenance and now knowing what i now know um it was clear he had some kind of attention deficit issue or some kind of focus issue and he was literally medicating or self-medicating using cannabis even at that time i just didn't recognize it because it was still you know he was smoking pot far as i could tell yeah. and uh but yeah for three years of law school it laid right there on the table and i just never picked it up and touched it um so it just wasn't wasn't my bag so what did your family think when you got involved in marijuana, the cannabis business, the devil's lettuce business? Yeah, it's uh, the real challenge is my three kids. Um, you know, I have one now in college, one's a senior in high school, one's a sophomore in high school. And, uh, you know, the, the question of, you know, dad selling weed uh, came up an awful lot. And, uh, and you know, it's kind of hard then to take uh, a discussion with them on. Uh, whether or not they should partake, obviously, you know, it goes around high schools today like it ever did. Um, and my answer to them is is very clear. I'm 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 very comfortable with my position on it today, which is um, if they have a choice as an adult between cannabis and alcohol, they should use cannabis. It is the 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 health the health impact of alcohol is tremendous, and um, and the social impact of it is tremendous. The risk to your health is tremendous, whereas cannabis, you know, has very few of those. However, I give them my PTSD observation and discussions, which we won't, it's a longer story. But the, the, the short answer is, is if you're in a stage of life dependent on um, instant recall or regurgitation, then, then cannabis probably isn't for you as a developing brain. And so don't do it now. Um, but if you have a choice later as an adult, you should choose cannabis over alcohol. Um, and so that's kind of the message I give them. Uh, I give them all the science behind it and, you know, then they have to make their own choices. They're, uh, they're not adults, but they're certainly capable of deciding for themselves what's, what's right at this point. Got it. Yeah. I think that's pretty good advice. I have an 18 year old daughter. She's, uh, you know, she's, she's known what I've been doing for the last 26 years or so. And she's heard me on the phone many, many times speaking to cancer patients and, uh, you know, people that are going through chemo and uh, like you mentioned, ADHD and other conditions, Parkinson's, et cetera. And she's, she's been involved. She, so that whole, your brain is on drugs. Uh, that generation doesn't have the same kind of association as like our generation did with the whole Nancy Reagan thing. So I, I think that's, that's, that's definitely. definitely. And their mom nice. converted from being a, a well-respected and 20 year pediatrician in the community. So she was the doctor for many, many, many children over time. She now conducts a cannabis practice through two clinics in town. And so we're a fully converted family. And, uh, you know, her high, the kids, high school teachers love to point that out that, uh, mom and dad, so we, um, <laughs> so, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's been interesting. I, it's opened me up to quite a few different cultural perspectives. I've learned a lot about, um, the medicine itself, the plant itself. And, uh, and the kids have taken the ride with me. Um, I, I my parents, I, I don't think they've weighed in on it either way. Um, but, uh, it is. I have had a couple repercussions from it that I didn't expect going from a well-respected lawyer to cannabis CEO. Um, and uh, uh, most rec recently being my bank, I think they're going to about to cancel my bank account because my paycheck comes from Fluent now and uh, instead of uh, my law firm. So uh, I think that's yeah. an interesting turn of events. I've had that happen to me too. So my, my bank actually canceled my account uh, due to that reason, even though my company doesn't touch the plant, doesn't have anything to do with cannabis. We're a genetics company, and uh, but they they still cancel my account. So they're lost. Uh, I recently they're... received a notice that I had to give them a bunch of information about a series of accounts that I've refused. And so we'll see what they do. Um, you know, I uh, yeah. um, it, it'll be a challenge for them to consider canceling all of those accounts, but we'll see. We'll see what position they take on it. In the meantime, I now, despite safe banking not passing, I now have two regional banks that I did, did banking with in the real estate market have come to me in the last 30 days yeah. seeking deposits. They're ready to get in. And, and they've, they've done exactly what everyone, what the states did is the federal government development is too slow. All of those deposits are sitting there and they can't resist. And so we have, we're seeing regional banks get in now um, and just take the risk. Yep. No, it makes uh, sense. So let me, let me kind of understand the journey uh, of becoming a CEO of a publicly traded cannabis company. So you, you're an attorney. 
Uh, you're, an, you're an advisor, you're a consultant. Uh, I think you were involved, I read, uh, with the cannabis clinics as well. At some point, you've, uh, you've done some of that. What's the journey? What's the trajectory from that So to- I think I told you, I sat on the, one of the first boards in, uh, of the first five. And in doing so, I was responsible for getting the cultivation center built, processing center built, and we got one store open. And, and quickly after we did that, the Canadian company, Afria, came in and bought the company. And the shareholders and investors of that company, they're paid out. And, you know, it was in those early days and so they get paid out pretty well. Um, those groups, after they had some cannabis money in their pocket, they started, you know, receiving and vetting cannabis company offers throughout the United States. And when, when one looked like it had legs to it, it would be pitched over to me to check it out and vet it out. And when I passed on it um, and approved it, then um, in a go forward model, it was my job, you know, more back to lawyering set up the facility, set up the corporate facilities, go out to wherever the license was and stand up a corporation, take it, take it from a license, a piece of paper to a functional corporation. And I did that several times for several different groups in Oregon, back in DC, in Florida. Um, and then was asked to consult with other groups that were, you know, they had caught the bus. Uh, congratulations. They have a license. Now what? Um, and so just organizing it was, uh, consulting work that I did for several years. Um, and then in 2019, in December, I got a call from Fluent, the board, and their message was pretty simple. Uh, they were a first-generation cannabis board. No one on there knew anything about the business of cannabis. Uh, we had the required two Canadians um, in which um, they were required because we were Canadian. Um, very astute business people, very business people from the financial sector, but just not cannabis people. And their message was pretty simple. We know as a company, we're not doing well. Uh, we are a nose down, but we do not speak cannabis. We do not speak the language and we can't even interpret what we're being told. Maybe you could come in and be a liaison between the board and management. And so I did. I came in. I started advising and consulting, uh, observing, writing memorandums. Um, and about 30 days into it, the CEO resigned. Um, and so then my next job with respect to Fluent, again, at this point, I'm still a lawyer. I still have many, uh, many, many other clients. Um, my next job with respect to Fluent was to do a CEO search. Uh, we conducted a national search, negotiated with two parties to, to, no, to no avail. Then we had a, you know, a low period where July, June, July, August of that year, I was the only one standing. So I was answering the questions, helping management, continuing to provide input and value. And then the concern came in August of 20 that um, I was an advisor or third party advisor, but technically acting as the CEO of a publicly traded company. And, and there was a good bit of concern about, I had not signed any of the financial documents or any of the uh, uh, issues with respect to uh, competition or um, trading. So we needed to go ahead and make me official. Uh, and so we did that in September of, of 20. Quite frankly, with the instructions of continue the improvements as we do, as we have been doing, but um, the company was going to sell at the time there was a, a, a purchase agreement on the table signed, we were in a due diligence process. So when I took the wheel, it was to hold it, improve it a little, and then the company was going to be sold. Um, That deal failed. The next deal comes up, it fails. The next deal comes up, it fails. And all the while I'm sweeping up the house and cutting the low hanging fruit and contracting the company, firing the friends and family program that was going on there. Um, And one day we all looked around and the board said, hey, you know what? We don't suck anymore. Uh, maybe we shouldn't sell as a fire sale. And I said, yeah, I don't think you should sell. You're, you're doing, your company's doing pretty well, actually. Yeah. Um, COVID hits. That actually was a boom for us. Um, and so it turns out, you know, hurricanes and pandemics, it's toilet paper, water, weed, and alcohol, in case you want to know. Um, and <laughs> so um, that helped out for us. Um, and a couple little other very lucky turns of events and a lot of hard work. And we became the fastest growing cannabis company in Florida. Uh, we were, you know, turning in record quarterly uh, profits, uh, revenues. And uh, so that's how we got here. Um, I hope to, if I, if I'm lucky, I hope to never go back to the practice of law. I like that. Well, having a law, my, I have a, a close friend of mine who graduated law school. And, and so what are you going to do? He goes, well, when you have a, a law degree, it's sort of license to print money. You can do all kinds of different things because you have the law behind you, but he, he became a sports agent. So you can do real estate, like all the things he mentioned. Um, so I have, I'm trying to figure out how to phrase this question. So I'll phrase it this way. Um, 
there's a cultural divide in our industry between the suits and the beards. And I'll just leave it at that. The suits are, you know, the corporate guys who never, they stayed away from the plant. Uh, they don't they don't know, but they see that this, there's a quote-unquote green rush and they can make money off this. And obviously there's uh, assets and all those other things. And then there's, you know, the old school beards, the, the people who've been cultivating or fighting for legalization and, you know, for generations, et cetera. When you get together, and I've seen this in different companies, there is a big cultural divide. Did you feel that influent? And, and if so, how did you kind of bring that all together? I, I felt it and feel it every day. Um, it is tremendous. Um, you know, the the suits, if you would, um, are usually from the financial sector. Um, there's there's quite a few from the law sector, but mostly financial sector. Um, and then the the legacy growers, and the term legacy there is used as uh, they did it before it was legal. Um, and, um, you know, they come from a different culture entirely. They, their culture is more, their word is their bond. They're more reputational about things. They're more anecdotal about um, things related to what I would call marketing. Um, and um, they, uh, they're a little less structured and, and usually have a, a fairly thin grasp on, on core business principles. Um, there's also the biggest factor, the biggest factor that prohibits um, a good melting pot there is the lack of trust. There is an inherent distrust of the legacy groups from what they call corporate. In fact, if if they say the word corporate, they are they are insulting you. Um, it is not a compliment. Um, and so, um, I, I got really lucky when I was standing up an Oregon operation. I met some great growers out there. You know, I had my boots on. I was in the fields and uh, passed as um, someone that was between the two worlds. And um, and you know, was able to build a re- reputation before I was judged. Again, I think um, having the agronomics background educationally, being from the Redneck Riviera, you know, I'm a big fan of Bud Light, um, so I don't, I don't, I don't come in pretentiously to anything. Um, and I think that helps. Um, and I just like people. I like to know their story. I like um, finding out about the interesting uh, past of people and the routes that they took to get there. And so. You know, if you're very interested in just the, the lifespan of people and their and their saga, if you would, their their history, then you know pretty quickly they realize you're not judging them at all. You're just curious about them and you want to know about them. And so I spend time investing in them. That helps build the trust, but that trust is in me. It's not necessarily in corporate still. Right. Um, and and so we struggle with it almost every day. Um, and um, I don't think it ever goes away. Here's the reality. It, it's a chocolate and peanut butter thing. We need them and they need us. Yeah. Um, and if they're going to get to the, you know, what, what most of them want, the legacy growers want is to get into the light, is to bring their celebrity, bring their their talent and their skills and be recognized for it. And as it was told to me one time, make money in a way that they don't have to walk around looking over their shoulder, you know, make money that they put into their kids college fund, make money. I mean, they, 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 most of them I've run into want to do it right and get, get legal. Um, and we're that opportunity as the license holder. Uh, yeah, yeah. So you have to realize that you need each other. And once you realize you need each other, then you, it's easier to set aside some of these things. Um, and um, then what's tricky there is a division of labor. You have to continue keeping people in their lanes. Um, and, and that's tricky because you have to do it, you know, with a decent amount of respect and courtesy, which is, I know, I know you think you know how to do this, but you really do this very well. So could you just go do that thing for me and let these guys do this? Uh, and so, um, there's actually a third culture that doesn't get talked about much, but is just as difficult. And that is in a vertical state, we are three companies, not two. We are a retail company and we are a cultivation company where those legacy growers come to effect. But in the center, we are a manufacturing, processing, and packaging company. And inside of the heart of our manufacturing facility are a bunch of lab rats. Uh, they're chemists and they're uh, formulation experts. And, you know, they went to school on a different track than I did. Um, I, you know, they went a hard science, chemistry, math degree type, lab code type way. And, you know, so they're sitting in the middle of this culture and it's a whole different other group um, and a whole different other culture. And so we really have a blend of at least three cultures. Yeah, it makes total sense. I, I suggest that in your next uh, corporate meeting, you all pass around the peace pipe and share 
And then uh, that bonds people together like nothing else that I've seen. No matter what. I try. Yeah, it's uh, <laughs> it, part of which is getting them to speak their same language. So when I first started in September 20, I set sales goals for the year. We set $100 million as the goal. We, we made 97. So we did okay. Um, but what I realized is dollars is only the language of the sales group. Um, and which is the very end. And so this year, when we did our sales goals, I set the, the goal in milligrams. Milligrams is the universal language of cannabis throughout the operation. And so we spoke, we speak milligrams all the way from uh, cultivation through processing and packaging all the way through sales. And then only in the sales step does it get converted to dollars. And so setting, finding a language that everyone speaks and can relate to and the way they think about it is important. Uh, that's a great point. Yeah, I think. That definitely connects people together because everybody knows, you know, 3.5 uh, grams is an eighth of cannabis. And that's, you know, that's where you're moving all the way through. But, you know, except for extraction products. So what makes Fluent different? Right now, what makes us different is, um, is our efficiency and our ability to scale and our ability to operate with very little um, cost overhead, very little debt. This industry, Fluent was was just like MedMen or some of the others back in the day. They had ended up in the great license chase and they were 100 miles wide and one inch deep. They, they had licenses in multiple states. They had um, paper assets, but no ability to vertically develop those assets. And so really what I did was grow by contraction. I cut off all the dead ends. I looked at a project that was being pursued, thought, oh, this is a loser, or we will never get there, even though we put $2 million into it. I just kept cutting it back. And, and so we... We got back to basics, if you would. So um, the greatest compliment to me is in the early days, if you remember, when I took the wheel, we were already under contract. And so we were being sold and the buyers would say, you've got good bones. If you were an old car, you'd say you've got good bones, but you've got to be reworked. Um, they wanted our paper. They wanted our licenses and some equipment and assets. Uh, and then later, the, the the buyers came in. It was a different class of buyer. And it was you know, you've got good bones and your, your economics are doing pretty well. Your revenues are doing well. Um, and now the last couple interested parties we've had, and, you know, now we're much bigger. So the, the table of buyers is much smaller. Um, they, they've, we're being approached now because of our management skills, because of our efficiency, because we actually know how to put all three components together and get it to the shelf in an efficient manner, which is a trick. Um, and so, from an internal side, what we do better than everyone right, else right now is we move efficiently. We understand how to pro flow process the steps and we're able to uh, grow good quality product and for the lowest cost. Mm -hmm. From the customer side, um, really it's um, our taking on the high quality flower challenge. Um, when, I, when I got here, um, my first memorandum was, your company sells a medium quantity of medium, medium quality cannabis. Good news, so do all your competitors. Um, and so the state of cannabis in Florida was a very young market from a, from a maturity consumer point of view. I like to compare it to alcohol where everyone, when I got here, they were all shooting tequila. Um, and then, you know, eventually what happens is, you, you know, you start evolving into beer, then craft beer, and then maybe a wine, and then a nice white wine, and then a nice red wine. And eventually you're drinking scotch by the time you're my age. Um, or a nice red wine. Well, you know, they were all shooting tequila for content back then and content was driving. We're not far along now than that. We are probably in the IPA craft beer segment now, um, but headed towards a more mature consumer. Well, in those early days, everyone could get by selling mediocrity. Um, but I had just come from Oregon. I just set up an operation out there and, you know, the stuff that was being sold in Florida, you couldn't even, you couldn't do anything with it in Oregon. You'd have to bonfire it or something or bury it in the ground because the consumers out there were so sophisticated. Yeah. Um, and so, I, you know, everything in cannabis seems to flow west to east. And so we got out early with the high quality, with the premium, with the, uh, with something more than, um, and just, uh, your old strain. So yeah. started phenotyping, started pheno hunting. And, and so I think that's what we're leading in now. We're about to come out with the concentrates and so forth. So we'll, we will, I think do real well in those as well. Yeah. It's, it's interesting because like you're in a medical state and the idea is, I mean, you're in multiple states, but I'm, I'm just talking about Florida because it's a vertically integrated. So the idea is to use the plant to help people, you know, get healthier 
uh, whatever condition that they have based on the conditions that are approved in Florida. So you having products that address the the medicinal market are important in Oregon. Uh, having you know. I can't stand the word recreational adult use market. Uh, having a, a market allows you to flex a little bit more. Like you have different types of concentrates. You have higher uh, THC amounts. You may not even have uh, a market for a more balanced one-to-one cultivar or something like that that has terpene profiles. I just came back from Denver. I'm in LA. So we see that when when the market shifted from medicinal to rec, uh, a lot of medicinal patients didn't have access to the same kind of products. So are you also looking at different types of product lines based on, you know, your expansion, or are you going to have products that are more, um, you know, medically focused and then, uh, you know, those premium products or cultivars that you're mentioning? So we, we're going to maintain our core of medically focused products. Um, I, you know, that's what got us here. Um, you know, I, I shouldn't say this um, as a CEO of a cannabis company, you know, I'm unsure about adult use. I'm not as rabid a supporter of it in Florida as you might think. Um, from an economic point of view, I think it'll be a tremendous benefit to the companies. Um, you know, we've got about 850,000 customers right now with registered patients out of a state of 21 million, state that sees 60 million visitors a year. Um, it will be tremendous. Florida will be the largest cannabis state, no doubt, um, if it goes adult use. Um, I, from a business perspective, I think it's the the right answer. Um, whether it's the right answer for our population and whether it overshadows the medical need is a concern of mine. And um, and so we will always stay true to our, our medical roots, if you would. Um, the way our stores are oriented, the way our menus are oriented are to assist those people who um, are looking at it as an alternative. Um, you, know, my, you mentioned my involvement with medical clinics. Uh, you know, there, there's still not a good database of, of statistics out there for this, this drug as it's efficacies and such, but the anecdotal evidence is stacking up. Um, the ability to help people with PTSD, the ability to help people in their journey to get off of opioids is tremendous. And, you know, again, remember, I didn't come from it from a uh, recreational user point of view. My interest is really from the medical point of view, and I can believe in it and I can support it and I can sit down at dinner with my kids at night because I know it helps people. Yeah. Um, I, I don't, I don't know that I'm a CEO of a recreational cannabis company. Um, I may not find the mission to be as compelling, uh, and really as defensible from, from my position in life. So, um, we'll see, we'll see when it gets there. Um, I, clearly the economics would be a benefit to the companies. Yeah. I, I completely concur with you and, and looking at California as a beacon of this, uh, I mean, so many mistakes made and, and there is very, very little choice for true medical patients now. And, uh, you know, the black market's thriving and all the, all those other things. But speaking of why Texas, why a uh, look into Texas? So, you know, when I was on the cutting board, this company had Texas. They were one of three in Texas when I, when I got here. Um, And when I was, when my cutting board was, was in action, um, I looked at Texas long and hard. It is classic uh, Southern state where the legislation passed, but there were enough poison pills and bottlenecks in it inserted that it really was not an effective or viable program. And so the license really was on a, in a, in a stagnant point of view. Um, DPS is the agency assigned to regulate it. Uh, they're a great group. Um, you know, when you're in a highly regulated industry, your, your regulators are your business partners. Um, we learned that in Michigan. It's why we pulled out of Michigan because quite frankly, our partners, i.e. the regulators weren't doing their job. And so if they couldn't do their job, then we couldn't survive in the state. Um, Texas is just the opposite. Um, great group over there at DPS. They are in charge of firearms, driver's licenses, state troopers, and the Texas Rangers. And then they, they, then they assigned cannabis. Uh, and, and clearly you can tell it within the department that they didn't ask for it. Uh, but now that they've got it, they're going to do their absolute best. And um, so you have a really good regulate, regulatory partner who, who really wants the program to be successful. But you have legislation that is styming the growth of the program. So we just sat on it. And waited and waited. And every time DPS said, why don't you get moving? We said, why don't you fix your legislation and make it an economically viable because proposition? Because as the public company CEO, I have to justify that $1 of investment, whether I put it in Florida or Texas, 
what is the return? And the return always measured out better in Florida. Okay, so then they changed the conditions. They expanded them. They expanded THC. There was an effort for 10%, but it ended up at one. Um, some of the regulatory restrictions um, relaxed a little. And so, and I've been appointed to the regulatory advisory council. So um, uh, again, the effort of DPS to really, really get the industry involved. Um, it now has a viable chance. There's 43,000 patients there. Um, there. The problem with Texas is it's so big. Um, I went over there about a month ago and said, we're going to open up Texas. We're going to get moving in Texas. And I was in Houston. I realized Houston, 7.2 million people is the third largest, fastest growing city in the country. And it's enormous. Uh, and so I, I, I revised my aspirations, said, we're not going to tackle Texas. We're going to tackle Houston. Yeah. Uh, and so we've got a store opening in Houston, probably in about six months, seven months. Mm-hmm. Um, we're up and running with a physician outreach program. It is an enormous potential. Um, the return on that potential, probably still another three years, five years. Um, but the conditions are right for growth in Texas. Mm-hmm. The real issue is it's such an enormous population of people spread over an enormous geography um, with only three licensees. Um, you, you just you know, it's tough to be a pioneer. You have to be really strong to be a pioneer. I know everyone played Oregon Trail when they were younger. Uh, you know, you, you, pioneers don't survive. Yeah. And so when DPS came to me and said, if you guys don't get moving, we're going to let more licensees in, my response surprised them. I said, you probably should. Um, you know, when we were five of us and then seven of us in Florida in 2015, there was no sense of competition. Uh, all the pie you could eat was on the table. Yeah. Uh, there was a sense of surviving which was getting the capital assets together in a way that you could get to a revenue moment. Mm. And that's where we are in Texas. Um, it's a big state, big population, but it's a grassroots start. We have to, you know, do you have these conditions? Could you be benefited from cannabis? Grassroots, get out there and, and make contact, convince the physicians to become physicians because they're the gatekeepers. And the economics are not strong for a physician. Uh, the, you're not going to have a brain surgeon turn into a cannabis physician because the economics just don't support it. So you have to find the right type of physician that it goes with their holistic or general practice um, um, scenario. Usually pain management's really good. General practice is good. Uh, so we have to recruit physicians. Yeah. We have to help educate those physicians. We have to recruit patients. We have to basically build it from scratch. So it'll be a big challenge. But in the end, Texas will be a major cannabis state. Yeah, I, I hope so. Uh, speaking of expansion in different states, uh, how do you maintain consistency of products uh, because every state you know, has different requirements and different uh, cultivars and you can't send things uh, you know, across state lines? So how do you, you must have some really stringent SOPs in place for cultivation and for manufacturing purposes to make sure that you have you know, products available that are consistently high quality in different states. So we do have good SOPs and we do have a good genetic uh, portfolio, but the, the heart of that is, and, and you ask it state to state, but what's really is just as interesting to me is facility to facility. These facilities, they are their own organisms. Mm. And no matter what you do over in one facility, even if you moved hundred miles in Florida and went into another facility, like if you take the one behind me and go an hour and a half to our other one, the plants don't react the same, the same cultivars don't generate the same result. And so you have to have, that's the difference. That's when you know you have a real grower. A real grower will come into the environment they're in and continue to field trial and test and and, and do small scale mock-ups and continue to what I call dial in a facility. Mm. And so you could start with the basics. The basics are the SOPs. The basics are a genetic uh, uh, portfolio that matches what your sales groups wants to see. Uh, And from there, it's just a series of trials. In in one of our facilities, we'll have five to seven trials going at any one time, all the time. Mm -hmm. And that's we're continuously dialing in the facility to get it better and better and better. And whether it be different states, certainly there's a differential between our northern states and our southern states. But even inside of different facilities, um, it's 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 really interesting because what you're doing is you're taking uh, a seed, if you would, that has a genetic potential, just like I had a genetic potential and so did you. And then, you know, you're putting that seed in the best environment to realize its maximum genetic potential. So 
you know, is that seed, which has the potential to be an NFL running back, you know, is it going to get there? Well, it needs the right nutrition. It needs the right weight program. It needs the right everything. Um, the all encompassing aspect of its environment to reach that maximum potential. Yeah. And if you fall short, then, then you, you didn't, you didn't give it something it needed over time. And you got to figure what that something is and then dial that out. And so really the answer is you got to know what you're doing. Um, and you have to be able to come into a facility and, and work with what you have versus some growers, they come in and go, I I'm the best grower that there is. What I need you to do is tear all this out, put $50 million into this facility, which is exactly like the one I used to grow in. And then I could do my magic. Yeah. And, and, and that's the difference between a, between a, a real grower and a, and a, and someone who's been in the growing industry. Yeah. And that makes total sense what you said. And, and also, you know, cultivation is a big part of it, but also the curing, you have to make sure that you're, uh, you're expressing the potential of that plant after you take it down to the best of its ability. So it expresses all uh, the terpene profiles, et cetera, and, and, and the flavonoids. So. And balancing those two groups. Remember now we, now this is where the point where a culture rub can, comes in. So you have, you find a grower who's a master grower and they'll, they'll really sell no weed before it's time. And then they're interfacing with a production oriented person who's, you know, usually some type of engineering base. And, you know, they're treating it more like a manufacturing output where so many units come out on every, every five days and it goes into packaging and so forth. Well, then you, you, you've got this, what I call positive dynamic tension, although a lot of times it's not so positive, um, where the grower has to release it from a quality point of view. Mm. Well, if it's not day 70 or 73 or 91, um, production starts getting upset. And, and then you have this tension moment where they're trying to hold it, cure it, get it right. And seasonality is tremendous. It's really fascinating how much seasonality in Florida impacts an indoor facility, mm. but it does, it does all day long. And so um, we have to have these windows of, of QC range that are built into the scenario. Mm. You, you mentioned, uh, you know, you mentioned the medicinal, the, the evidence of uh, the plan having, uh, you know, medical properties and, and uh, you know, helping people with certain conditions. Are you planning or are involved in any uh, uh, research in terms of uh, uh, clinical studies or, or clinical trials or observational studies, uh, IRB studies, anything like that? As far as plant development or as far as human? As far as uh, human, as far as taking some of the products of the cultivars or maybe your manufactured products and looking at what the efficacy is of those specific products for those symptomatic conditions. So, you know, efficacy from an anecdotal point of view, um, you know, we're not involved in the level of trials that would be needed to uh, meet a pharmaceutical standard, meaning, you know, we're not doing anything with controlled dosage and blood work and, you know, that type of uh, observation. Uh -huh. um, but in the early days, um, now not so much because the, the level and number of product formulations and delivery mechanisms have really developed into a, a robust format. But in the early days, um, we were constantly talking to the physicians um, and, and, you know, observing some things that we really hadn't thought about, which is um, our, um, some of our patients have a difficulty swallowing. Mm -hmm. Um, and so they need something to where they, you know, they don't have to take an oral tincture or something along those lines. And so, you know, maybe a suppository will work. Mm -hmm. Uh, and so we have developed a line of suppositories and it was just a method of, of dosing that was catered to a group of patients that, that, that clinically needed the medicine. And so we did a lot of early development on formulation, which is the ratios mm -hmm. as well as administration of the product. Um, now a lot of those products are out there and available. So we're doing less and less of that. Um, although I am working, we are working right now with a nebulizer, um, to determine if it has a more positive impact with respect to an alternative vaping. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm not a smoker and so I don't, I don't smoke of any type. Um, and, um, and so I'm constantly, you know, my personal focus is in developing products that have, um, that, quick response time or quick activation time, like an inhaler, yeah. um, you know, and of course the difference is the means of administration is either through the lungs um, or through the gut, if you would. And so, you know, you, if you can get somewhere in between there with the mucous membranes or otherwise, then you can have a little bit more fast acting yeah. uh, because 
I believe that um, cannabis is as effective, if not more effective, through some type of oral administration. Um, but, you know, there's a group that, that likes the effects of smoking because it's early onset and it's controlled dosage, meaning within a few minutes of after smoking, you're at your peak dosage and then it starts to decline from there. Whereas um, the ingestion is more like a bell curve. Yeah. And, and I think you hit the nail on the head. And I was asking you for for the because my company has a, a genetic test and we, we guide people to products are more um personalized to them, but you, you hit the nail on the head. Uh, you know, THC is a very narrow therapeutic window. And if you're consuming inhalant, you'll have that effect and it's gone. Also, it matters what type of metabolic function somebody has. So if they're going through first pass, how they metabolize changes from person to person. And, uh, you know, and also drug interactions. Some people are taking supplements or, or different prescription medication and you know, phytocannabinoids can interact with those as an inducer and inhibitor. So those are the things that, uh, you know, we're trying to measure now to see so we can give that information back to companies like yourselves and be able to have a more personalized experience. Uh, I wanted to ask you, uh, I have a few more questions uh, before we wrap up, but I'm just curious, is there a state or a country that sort of is doing it quote unquote, correctly, where you can say, okay, you know what, this is a model that we can sort of replicate. Is there anybody that's doing it right? Not a hundred percent. There are really good component aspects to several different programs throughout the country. Um, And the the programs that are successful share some commonality. Mm -hmm. Uh, One, there is a titration of licenses. Um, meaning there is some mechanism for licenses to roll out over time um, that is related to consumption, whether that's number of patients or otherwise. Because what you see in the Western markets is an oversaturation of supply and the economics of supply and demand take over, and that's the end of that. Um, And you've seen that every time they try to roll out too many. So some type of titration of licensing or limited entry is is key. Um, Secondly, um, the states that allow the expansive conditions and then more physician interaction and control mm-hmm. rather than legislatures telling doctors how to doctor. This is not a, a difficult drug for physicians to administer. They, it, you know, they can certainly, if they can write oxycodone, they can write cannabis. Yeah. And so, you know, the more states try to legislate doctor function, the, the more it fails and the more it's not a good result for the patient. So you see that, I'm sorry, I was going to give you some states. So titration licenses, uh, Pennsylvania does a really good job of the way they've titrated out licenses. The other thing uh, you see in Pennsylvania and some of the, uh, I think the South Carolina perspective legis- legislation is divisionalization within the region. So what happens is this is kind of an equal opportunity scenario where um, in a state like Pennsylvania, everyone would be in Pittsburgh. <laughs> But they've split the state up and they forced out um, by divisional, divi- dividing the, the, the state up, they forced into these regions. And so it al- allows a better coverage of the state. So that's a really good. So titration license, division of the region of the state, letting the physicians do their thing. Um, and then from there, um, you end up with you know the, the THC cap. Anytime they try to THC cap or dosage limit or all of that, it's just it's it's all creating a, a big ball of wax that that people try to end run anyway. So none of that's effective. Yeah. Um, so those are a couple of the highlights um, that I've seen. You know, one of the you know a state can do it wrong when they roll out too many licenses. The other thing that I've, I've watched states do right and wrong. Um, uh, equally, I would think, is this idea of social justice and uh, social equity. Um, you know, I think what happened in New Jersey uh, and even New York to some degree was was a really terrible. Um, you know, the, the idea that they had a license, but they had an eligibility to get a license. Um, the social equity movement is tremendous if it can be offered at the retail level, because retail is easy to get into. It's just a store. Uh, and so you, low capital entry, um, it's retail concepts. Um, but then when you continue to try to offer it at the more in-depth levels, what you're really doing is you're putting this bigger capital burden. Mm. Uh, and so it, it fails. It, it fails every time. It's, it's not as good a uh, good a model. Mm. And so how a state acknowledges and tries to work in these social equity and social equity access issues is important. And you can see both the failures and success stories there as well. Um, so those are a couple of things I've observed when traveling around. 
Um, the final aspect of it is what I mentioned in Michigan. Um, you know, the pricing there is impacted by illegal products coming in. Most of the cannabis that is sold on the East Coast that is illegal is grown on the West Coast, of course, and moves east. Um, and that trend has continued in state, some states, even though they have a legal program, because they just don't have the enforcement yet. Yeah. And so if you're going to put us all in a strictly enforced program, then you have to you have to enforce it. Uh, you have to have the resources to police. If not, then the black market has a competitive advantage because they're not following all the rules. Right. And, and, and so, taxes. And the cost the taxes, of right. insurance, insurance taxes. I mean, they're not paying any of the things we're paying. Exactly. And so what happens is they have an artificially subsidized price, the subsidy being their illegal action. Um, and so once you do it legally, um, then all those costs come about, come in play. So, but so do all the safety standards. So do all the tracking and accountability. So do all the things that the legislative groups wanted when they passed yeah. the cannabis program. hundred percent. So have you uh, consumed any uh, cannabis uh, yourself since uh, you started this and, uh, and had a different experience? So I, I, I am a registered patient in Florida. It turns out I have anxiety. Um, and uh, <laughs> I guess it comes with the job, huh? Um, so, um, but I will tell you where it helped me. And, and this is just a personal story. I have, again, I told you I was not a user before, but uh, I was a pretty heavy drinker, a five o'clock drinker. Um, you know, uh, you, you've all seen the attorney shows. We're all compelled to gather for martinis at five and drink, drink heavily for two hours. Um, right. And, uh, you know, that's kind of a bad cycle that you get into where you run to that at, in the evening every day. And um, so I started using it to sleep. I had run melatonin out to where I was taking enough to kill a horse yeah. and it had failed me. And, uh, and I just could not get good sleep mainly because of my bad habits. Um, and I started my own positive spiral. I uh, started consuming a, a little bit of an edible at night to sleep, slept through the night, felt great the next morning. So I worked out. Okay. So I worked out. I felt good. I didn't drink as much. And then I consumed a little bit that night and, uh, and slept better. And then just was a positive spiral on top of the spiral. Now I almost, I, I very rarely have a drink uh, and I try to stay fairly fit. And uh, it's really helped me uh, turn the corner on that aspect. I, I didn't have any, you know, major debilitating issues like PTSD and so forth that I know of. But, um, right. but even what I, what I was challenged in working with, um, which, which my own choices, um, it helped me with an alternative. Was that, was an edible your first experience with, with cannabis? And that's uh you yeah, my first experience was um, uh, was the classic edible mistake. We <laughs> flew to Denver to the Jack Johnson concert and um, jumped off the airplane, bought a, everything you could see in the store that they allowed us to buy because who knows, rented a house in the mountains. And, uh, uh, and I think I ended up watching 12 straight hours of BETV behind the music, <laughs> the Dr. Dre story. <laughs> Uh, and so I, I did, I, 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 you know, I did the classic, I took a little, didn't feel it, took a little more, didn't feel it. Uh, next thing you know, I'm staring at, uh, the genius that was Dr. Dre for 12 hours. And, uh, so that's where I ended up. Well, if you're open to it, uh, I'll, I'll send you a, uh, endo DNA test and we'll see what kind of metabolize you are, because, uh, okay. one of the things that can happen is if you are a intermediate or poor metabolizer, that onset will be slower. And if you have other genetic predispositions that can trigger that, it can be a pretty intense experience uh, for somebody. Wow. So. Okay. That's neat. I'd, I'd love to, love to uh, check that out for myself yeah. and see, uh, see if I can dial it in. All right. So I have uh, that. That's actually a question I ask all my guests or please describe your first experience with cannabis. So uh, I'll ask you my second question. Uh, I'm a big music guy and you already mentioned Jack Johnson. So I figured you're, you're a music uh, person as well. Uh, if you can grab five albums to listen to for the next year, uh, what would they be? And I know for me, this changes. Like you can ask me in an hour and it'll change. So I'm putting you on the spot if you can think of five. Yeah, um, I'm on a Led Zeppelin kick right now. So um, I've just, the remastered album is on my playlist for the gym every morning. So I, I think I'd have to put any, just just, just call Led Zeppelin one of them. I, I don't know which one because I, the, the, the remastered album has a, uh, so it would have to be, have to be some Led Zeppelin. Um, I do enjoy Jack Johnson um, uh, and his uh, Brush, Brush Fire Fairy Tales album from, it's a little bit old now at this point, but I listened to it on the plane. Uh, and then I get kind of weird from there. I, uh, depending on what mood I'm in, I, uh, um, I have a selection of Adele that I listen to 
depending on which one I want, whether I want young, angry Adele or young and love Adele or angry Adele, uh, because her voice is just tremendous. And I, 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 it gives me chills every time I listen to it. Mm-hmm. So there's, there's three. Um, and, um, after that, you know, I, I still have my country roots. And so I have to, uh, I have to throw in a Kenny Chesney, uh, one of those albums or so forth. I, I like him before he kind of went Island style a little bit. Uh, although I do enjoy that music as well. Uh-huh. Um, and then number five would be, um, number five would have to be, you got me stumped on that one. Um, hmm. yeah, whatever comes to mind. <laughs> whatever whatever uh, musician that you uh yeah no i think i'd have to go back to something like motown i uh, have a, a couple motown greatest hits albums and the supremes always and sweet diana ross always uh gets me going in the morning so i think I, I think that would have to be number five uh something from the supremes collection uh do you remember the first concert you ever attended do it was acdc that's a good one <laughs> yeah was it um, I'm assuming it wasn't Bon Scott. It was uh, Brian Johnson, ACDC, as lead singer. Oh, I'm pretty old. <laughs> <laughs> Is it Bon Scott? I'm pretty old, too. Yeah, I think so. it was Bon Scott. <laughs> Is it Bon Scott? All right. Yeah, I was, I, was, cool. I was pretty young at the time. So <laughs> Very cool. Um, what has cannabis meant in your life? It, it gave me an opportunity that otherwise I would have never had. You know, I was very successful in my little neck of the woods and um, would probably ride this thing on out as a lawyer um, and had built a decent firm, had built a decent career and reputation. Um, Our firm is still very successful. Um, But that was the track I was on. And, and, you know, I, I don't know whether this would be fairly representative of my midlife crisis, but um, it came around at a, at a, at a good time. I, um, looked at it and I thought to myself, what else am I going to jump into that allows me to be the CEO of a publicly traded company? Uh, Microsoft was taken. Uh, they, they weren't asking. And so I, I I saw the energy of being a pioneer and being in the frontier of things. I, I liked the um, the brain teaser of, of, you know, when we were in Oregon, the very first time I went out there, when, actually, when I got out there, they had already planted a hemp crop, 174 acres. And I asked the question, how are we going to harvest this? And everybody stared at me. And so I said, you've got a crop in the ground that you have, you have no known methodology of harvest yet. Yeah. They're like, not at this scale. And so scale, 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 there's a book called Voltage Effect that I make all the new executive read. And it's about scalability. Um, and the challenge of taking the, the small world that was cannabis and scaling it is, is, is it really just gets me going every day. Uh, and so I'm reinvigorated by the challenges of this new frontier in industry that I was lucky enough to be tapped to be a leader in. And um, it's exciting. Um, when I go to MJ Biz in Vegas, there's now 20 products that are pieces of equipment that do what the year before there were only two. And, and it's just exploding as an industry and we're right here in the front of it. And, um, I, I think we'll look back one day and, and be noted as, as the pioneers. And, and I get to say back in the day and back in the day for me now was only three years ago and it looks completely different than it does today. Um, we, we, we talk about cannabis years as being a little bit faster than dog years. Um, and so, um, I really like the pace of it. I like the energy level. I like the opportunity to have the leadership position that I was given. Um, in which probably wasn't available to me in another sector. Yeah, that's great. I love that. All right. So final question, please describe what your room looked like growing up. Well, a lot of, uh, a lot of heavy metal posters, ACDC and uh, Kiss and all of those on the, on the walls. Um, you know, I was big, uh, a big metal head back in those days, very messy, I would say. Um, and, uh, my parents had a very good no fly zone rule. As long as I could open and close the door, they didn't mess with me. Uh, and so I, I had a carpet of used clothing that I would walk along and determine what was the best for the day. Um, and a uh, very small room. We, uh, we were a very moderate means, um, family growing up. Um, and so I think that would be it. I probably had a Wi-Fi, a hi-fi with a turntable going, um, there in the, in the corner, uh, the couple speakers, not the strawberry shortcake version, which was my first one that I, that I borrowed from my sister. Uh, um, so, uh, but later I got my own, uh, uh Dolby 2.0 format. So. I, I lied about my last question. Just curious. Cause you brought it up. Are you, do you have any plans to see kiss in their like final tour, final, final tour, which is their, their, uh, on now? 
I'd like to. I'd like to. I, I took the kids to see Elton John the other day um, up in Atlanta because, you know, I said, you have you have to go. And so we all dressed up in our, our best Elton John garb. Um, but I think. Did you wear the you know, sequins being, uh, uh, uniform? Uh, I baseball did. Uniform? It was rainbow sequins suit uh, and uh, bell bottom pants. It was outrageous. Uh, but but I fit right in. So I was good. Um, but, yeah, I think I would like to see the kiss. I uh, the, the going out tour. Um, what was it? Was it Journey? I went to the Journey with a new singer, and yeah. uh, you close your eyes there, and uh, that was pretty f- fantastic to hear um, that voice. Um, so amazing. Um, so yeah, I think I would. I think I'd go. I'd go check it yeah, out. Yeah, I, I saw Elton John at Dodger Stadium. It was fantastic, and uh, uh, I had an experience with man. His name just escaped me, but the lead singer of Journey. We were hanging out. I didn't know who he was, and we got to consume some cannabis together. And then I realized, oh, oh, wow. oh you, you're the little guy with long hair. You're the lead singer. I'm like, oh, yeah, that's pretty cool. So that's a, that's a lot of voice coming out of that. little. Man. <laughs> I know. Right. Um, <laughs> um, Robert, where can people contact you or find out more about Fluent or whatever you want to share with the audience? Well, you can go to getfluent.com. So G-E-T fluent.com. Uh, there's an investor link there if you want to come in and invest. We hope you do. Um, if you just want to ask general questions, there's an opportunity for that as well. Um, we have, we just opened store number 30 in Florida in Jacksonville. So that grand opening is going to be March 14th. So if you're over in that region of Florida, you need to come over to the grand opening of that store. Um, obviously we're in Pennsylvania and, and Anvil, Harrisburg and, um, Hanover, uh, Pennsylvania. And then our first store in Texas will be in, in Houston, uh, right next to the Black Rock coffee shop there on Sam Houston Boulevard, but everything in Houston, Sam Houston Boulevard. So that doesn't give you much direction. Well, Robert, I wanted to first of all congratulate you because this this industry is uh, you still have your hair. I I don't have mine. When I started, I had hair. So <laughs> hopefully you'll you'll still retain yours. But uh, you know, thank you for all the the hard work that you're doing, and congratulations, and uh, thank you for coming on. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. It was nice meeting you, and uh, and thanks for all the good questions. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Hey friends, I'm Brandon And I'm Saba. And we are your host of the Cannabis Hangout Podcast, an educational platform to connect with the cannabis community and share personal stories while breaking the stigma of marijuana. Join us every Sunday at 7 p.m. to gain valuable insight with different perspectives from industry leaders, growers, and medical marijuana patients. This is a place to learn so much from different angles in the cannabis industry. So tune in while we break it all down. down.